1: So as the situation gets worse, the faith in the incumbent is increasing. That, that says to me that there's broader things going on where the government's seen as being a steady pair of hands and the opposition is probably being seen as the opposite at the moment.
0: Hi, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm here with Peter Lewis, the Executive Director at Essential, and we're discussing this fortnight's Guardian Essential poll. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Paul. Um, now, we've got a few topics to cover in the poll this week. We've got The Voice. We asked uh, who is to blame for interest rate rises or which party is more trusted to handle our various issues in the economy, and we also asked about artificial intelligence. Um, but so let's... we've got to
1: try to get a narrative thread running through those three. That's going to be something that we have to um, struggle to tie together at the end.
0: <laughs> if only killer robots were in charge of, of interest rates. Um...
1: Maybe they are, Paul. Maybe they are. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Well, let, let's start with the with the voice. Uh, Essential has sixty percent support for voice, but there are some other polls uh, around saying that no has hit the lead. What's going on here?
1: Well, we've been having a look at the different polls that are out in the public domain, and it's quite interesting in that. Most of them are pretty much in the same ballpark when it comes to voting intentions. So we don't think it's around sampling. We're starting to think, wondering whether it's around the construction of the questions, which each of them is being done slightly differently. I must say that um, Essential and News Poll are members of the Australian Polling Council. So there's full transparency on the way we put our questions together. Resolve's chosen not to join the council. So we don't quite know what's going on in there, but... All we can do is talk about the numbers in front of us, which have been pretty stable since March at 60% support, 40% decline. As you say, some of the other um, polls have seen a significant decline. So there is a 10-point difference, I think, between ours and Resolve. As I say, there's a bit of a black box there, so we're not too sure what's going on. I can say on ours that hard no's have increased over the last month from 24% to 29% but they've all come off the soft no. So there's a hardening, almost a polarisation, I think, of both votes. Um, Hard yes is up a few points as well to 33. So where we sit, it's still, I think, if you're a supporter um, of the yes vote for um, constitutional recognition through a voice, as essential is, it's understanding the dynamics of what's going on not being alarmed, but being really clear that there's um, real work to be done to create the consensus we need to walk forward as a nation. Mm.
0: And so the way the questions are asked, the way that voters that are unsure of how they're going to vote, how they're dealt with, what produces those differences, do you think?
1: Well, you know, we all go into the field and get a a representative sample. We all analyse the... (laughs) the outputs and put it out. There's no way of saying this poll's right or this poll's wrong. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that that cliche, the only poll that matters is right because all of this is people giving an indication of what they may do in the future. For those with very long memories, the Republican, yes, polling was really, really strong till about six weeks out um, Mm. and then it effectively collapsed under the force of a, a vigorous and amplified no campaign. I think it's also fair to say, and I've made this point in my piece in The Guardian this week, that the way this campaign is playing out publicly is making it really, really hard for yes. In a way, the the proposition to change the constitution, to give First Nations people a voice is, it's moderate, it's quite a gentle invitation to, to change our... You know, rule book in a way that respects our history. It's not the stuff of daily headlines. And I think that there's almost a, um, an instinct, particularly in some elements of the media, both commercial media and the public broadcaster, to always be seeking balance. So we get these, you know, situations where you get a large number of First Nation leaders making a statement and Warren Mundine having a rant and they're both presented as balance or, you know, the the he said, she said on every little piece of legislative manoeuvring as if it's the main game. And then what we're seeing in our polls is the main thing standing between a yes vote and undecided and soft no voters is the sense that it's really divisive. Now, if every day the debate's being set up as a conflict, then, of course... That's what we're going to end up with. So um, I'm not doing this to say, oh, my team's having a hard time, so blame the ref. This is the world we're in. But the dynamics are very, very challenging just to maintain a course of sober, reflective invitation for the nation to move forward. Like it's it's not exactly what the um, political media complex is geared up to exploit.
0: Mm. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, today commented on the state of the polls and he said that he thinks that, you know, 51-49 for yes is the best they could possibly do at the referendum. And so he was saying that is the thing that would divide the country, whereas constitutional recognition without voice would have 80 or 90 Support, But that, of course, ignores that a voice to parliament and the executive was what Indigenous Australians asked for in the Uluru statement from the heart. Mm. And, you know, most First Nations people, it's sort of 80% plus, according to polls, support the voice. Um, he also said that the voice is on a long slide in the polls and he doesn't think that bipartisan support would make any difference uh, because he thinks opposition is being driven by people not understanding it. Uh, what do you make of that argument?
1: Uh, he's been an active architect in the undermining of the community consensus that was looking really strong over the summer towards this proposition um, I think the choices he's made politically are really interesting and it's I think bearing out in the really low, it's interesting, isn't it? He's got very low approval ratings yet this proposition is or his no proposition appears to be gaining strength, whereas Albanese's got very strong support. Um, We haven't polled this week political leadership, I think, Albanese is waiting and I think that political capital will be brought into the contest at some point. Um, but I just think it's disingenuous to be saying this is just happening. This is happening because firstly, over summer, Dutton injected the detail into the discussion, asking questions that were really subject to legislation that follows the constitution rather than the actual proposition itself. And secondly... If it was just recognition, it totally rejects the invitation embedded in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which has led to this proposition. It's, it's worth remembering that um, there was a campaign infrastructure set up for recognition. It's almost a decade ago now, and it was rejected by First Nations people because it was seen as being purely symbolic. Out of that, the process has now led to Statement from the Heart, call for makarada voice treaty truth. That's that's what was put on the table by First Nations people. So to say, oh, we're just gonna go back to pure symbolism and it would win kind of misses the history of the last decade, which isn't the first time that this has happened from this particular leader.
0: Mm. Now, you asked uh, some interesting voice questions uh, beyond the support or or not support. You asked those who were against it their reasons for opposing it. And you also asked uh, whether people have read or understand the content of the Uluru Statement from the heart. What did you find on those two?
1: So, it was interesting. On the people that are either no or soft no, it was the dividing of Australia, which is kind of this Dutton line, which is the strongest reason. So again, the construct is established, is established quite successfully. In earlier research, we were having the issue that was the biggest barrier being it won't make a practical difference to the lives of Indigenous Australians. That, that sort of dropped down the rankings on this poll, at least. Um, the other question though we asked, which I think is really... I won't say profound, but it goes to the core of where we're up to, I think, as a nation not knowing where to go. So as I said before, and as I know we've discussed in the past, the the proposition comes out of a 400-word statement that was um, delivered in 2017, signed by over 200 First Nations leaders called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So it's been around for five years. For those that haven't read it, it is a beautiful document that lays out the case for change. Just one in eight Australians have either read it or heard someone read it. The invitation that we're being asked to respond to, one in eight Australians have read it. The other seven have not even spent the four minutes it takes. So, you know, there's lots of ways that you can move this debate forward it seems to me encouraging all Australians that have a view on it just to start by reading the the proposition rather than getting so caught up in the confusing legalese that politics is so good at discombobulating would be a really good step. So I'm sure that all your listeners, Paul, have read it, but it is um, the one practical thing that people can do if they do care about this thing getting over the line is to get their friends and families to, to read and reflect on what's really on the table, which is this very gentle invitation to to move the nation forward.
0: Yeah, and it's the same sort of dynamic as in the debate about detail or lack of detail. It's it's whether people are genuinely on a, on a good faith journey to try and understand or whether they're looking for permission or reasons to, to not accept something that they haven't spent the effort to understand.
1: Yeah, indeed, Steve Bannon said it. You feel the field with shit. And then you say, if you don't understand it, vote no. Like It's not that sophisticated and you can see it playing out. The question is, of course, for the campaign, what do you do about it? Um, Again, disclosure, we're working with the campaign, with civil society organisations and business, giving them the opportunity to have these discussions internally. It feels to me that to land this, we're going to have to go round the, I hate to use the mainstream media or the acronym I'm using, the Politico Media Complex. But if you get stuck in that false balance, we're not going to get through. We've actually got to go around it and use those networks. And if you look at it, 200-plus civil society orgs are now part of Allies for Uluru, the entire union movement, major sports codes, major churches, lots and lots of businesses. So those structures that we used to call civil society, actually, if they if they lean into it through their networks, you can go around the system that's tangled up this debate into something it was never intended to be. Hmm.
0: Now, moving from the referendum to some more day-to-day politics, uh, last week, the Reserve Bank raised interest rates for the 12th time in a row. Who or what did voters blame for rising rates in this poll? Well,
1: <laughs> there's, there's a number of questions we've been asking over a, a period of time. Unsurprisingly, prices going up i.e. inflation is one of people are seeing it linked to price rises. But, you know, the, the the narrative that's been growing over the last few weeks from some in the opposition benches is this is all about wage increases. So if you compare the number of people that think wages rising as opposed to prices rising is the key driver, it's 62 prices, 20 wages. There's 40% blaming the Reserve Bank a lot, and 38% the federal government. So I don't. These numbers suggest they haven't quite managed to disentangle or disembody. Yes, Philip Lowe is still a bit of a bogeyman, but the government's not getting off scot-free on it. What's dropped over the last little period is probably the real drivers, which are the um, disruptions in the supply chains triggered by the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. They're both still seen as having an impact, but not as much as they were when we asked this question last a few months ago.
0: Yes, on the whether people blame the RBA or, or the federal government. Although they were quite close in those results, it's the gap is a little bigger. If you look just at people with a mortgage, they were you know fifty one percent blaming the RBA overreacting, and forty percent blaming the federal government. So it seems like the people that are angrier and are closer to the pain of
1: rate rises are more likely to connect it to to the RBA. And that's hardly surprising because that's the organisation that keeps ratcheting it up every, um, Was it, the first Tuesday in every month. So, um, yeah, I don't find that a a total surprise. I do think there is a a real sense that one group in the population is bearing an unequal burden for the current strategies to address inflation and um, the fact that it hasn't to date seen to lead to any real deterioration in the vote for the Labor government. I don't think that's anything they're banking long-term. I think they'll be keeping a significant watching brief over that. But, you know, the other thing, Paul, that's interesting here is for all that noise and all that pain, party most trusted to handle rising interest rates, well, it's neither. Um, 44, no difference. But in terms of those that make a choice, 30 Labor, 26 coalition. So it's not like there's this is huge political dividend flowing into the, the opposition at the moment over this issue and, in fact, on every economic issue, which, you know, regular viewers and long-term watchers of politics will know are meant to traditionally handle the right of centre parties, Labor's ahead on all of them.
0: Yeah, and that was driven by a sort of collapse in the Coalition's ranking for most trusted on on some of those economic indicators. So just over a couple of months, those backing the coalition. As best to handle rising interest rates, fell sixteen points from forty-two to twenty-six percent, and that's what handed Labor the lead on that. I, I wonder yeah.
1: uh, what that it's could fascinating, be. isn't it? Be, so as the situation gets worse, the faith in the incumbent is increasing. That that says to me that there's broader things going on where the government's seen as being a steady pair of hands, and the opposition is probably being seen as the opposite at the moment.
0: Well, and and also just that the budget reply had a few interesting ideas in it. Um, You know, one good idea about restricting gambling advertisements, but it wasn't like a whole blueprint about here's what the coalition would be doing uh, any differently on on inflation. So maybe that's what people were after.
1: Yeah. um, I think that interest rates in particular, they're They're not seen as being government policy. They are the output of government policy. So if people are looking at interest rates, they're looking at other things because there is that separation. So again, older listeners will remember there was one election famously run and won on interest rates, which was John Howard's demolition of Mark Latham, where who do you trust to keep interest rates low? And I'm going to really go on a limb and say this was 2004. It might've been 2003. It's a long time ago. 2004. Oh, I was close enough. Was the voter choice. I remember I was close to the campaign at the time and there was this real sense that Howard had lost. It was just after children overboard. It was this whole thing that you couldn't trust Howard. And then he shifted it to who do you trust to keep interest rates low? And We had Mark Latham as our (laughs) standard bearer. So there you go. Um, And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: And again, I saw a similar dynamic here that it was those people with mortgages trusted Labor more than the coalition particularly. The coalition sort of narrowed the gap by being more trusted by people who owned their homes outright, who I imagine are slightly older voters. So maybe it is actually a a bigger boon for the government than it even looks on, on paper if the mortgage holders are backing them.
1: Oh, look, the age dynamic is probably the most defining thing in Australian politics at the moment on everything from voice to, as we're about to say, in terms of the regulation of technology, where it flips the other way. But when it comes to the way that they look at the way parties handle um, the economy, you're you're rusted on voters attending to sort of give you ballast, and that's where um, the coalition is sorely lacking when it comes to younger voters
0: Mm. And there were bigger partisan gaps in Labor's favour on some of their uh, more traditional strengths in services, such as health and welfare, 43% favoured Labor, 22% the coalition, reversing the trend of insecure work, which is uh, while we're debating the same job, same pay mm. legislation, that was 38 to 20 And climate change, 34% to 18%. So they've got their nose in front on the economy and streets ahead on sort of social measures.
1: In the old sort of framing of, um, I think it was Lackoff, the the daddy and the mummy, the issues that Labor and left of centre parties are seen to be doing particularly well on, and I'm not going to use the term softer because they're hard economic issues, but those that are more about people rather than about numbers was where Labor was always ahead, um, health, education workers' rights and, yeah, they're holding up there and they're neutralising the other side's natural advantage on the economy. So, you know, it's interesting to think what this year is going to be like if the Prime Minister hadn't made the call to move on a voice, which has been a and still should be a unifying moment for the nation. But I do think that the numbers say that they're just, on politics as usual, they are smashing the opposition, as most governments do in the sort of second year of a change of government. Hmm. And
0: uh, moving to one particular area of regulation, Industry Minister Ed Husic has released a discussion paper trying to harness the opportunities of artificial intelligence, but also saying we might need to ban some of the high-risk uses. Uh, what did respondents to the poll say about that?
1: People are up for regulation. Um, they're up for regulation around AI in particular. I, I also need to just reheat the fact that there are privacy reforms in front of the Attorney-General at the moment. We haven't updated our privacy laws for 40 years. A lot of the technology and the business models of technology actually sit on top of the basic privacy laws. So it's while it's really good to see the movement to think through the impacts of, of AI, we also need to get the basics... <laughs> the foundation's right as well. So those propositions are moving their way through and I know you've been covering it and I've been sort of nudging you on that in my second capacity with the Centre for Responsible Technology. But in terms of AI, there is real appetite. So 55% support um, for the ban on high-risk uses of artificial intelligence, including a ban on the high-risk use of AI. This includes monitoring public places uh, or workplaces without consent, and then building up data sets to determine who someone is and where they are. I think it's also interesting here that when you give people a series of choices, the government should create new laws to further regulate the development of AI, and also the government should better enforce existing laws. Older people are much, much more likely to be supporting this. So if you look at that question, the government should create new laws to further deregulate, or sorry, We're not deregulating for once. This is a Labor government. To further regulate (laughs) the development of AI, it's 60% of older Australians, 55 plus, hello my generation, compared to 33% of 18 to 34-year-olds. So on a lot of these issues, the generational divide is much more laissez-faire the younger people are. They've grown up with these toys and tools, um, whereas those of us with a bit of experience has probably seen movies about the promise of technology before and seen where it all ends up.
0: Now, I was surprised by which examples of AI people thought were the most beneficial or the most concerning. So looking at those that they had the most positive view of, medical development, okay, tick. Mm. Uh, Automating work processes, that sounds great, tick. Till it's your job, Paul. People were also up for facial recognition technology. I couldn't believe that. 42% positive view of that, 28% negative.
1: So my good friend, um, former Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo, who's now at UTS's um, Human Technology Institute, was probably take issue with the way we've framed up. He always says there are good and bad uses of facial recognition technology. There's like the unlocking your phone with your face, which seems probably many people's experience of it. And then there is the mass surveillance of and policing of, of crowds based on these data sets, which are different. So I don't want to go too deep into that one. I do think that Chat GTP is interesting in that it's something that a lot of people have seen and tried and can sort of see. You don't need to be reading science fiction to see how this could be used and the veneer of it being sentient, which it's not makes it feel like a more clear and present danger.
0: 37% had a negative view of AI that generates new content such as chat, GPT, and 28% had a positive view. So that was on the scarier end.
1: Yeah, I'm just having a look here again by the ages. So on the positive, again, if you're under 34, 43% positive compared to 15% positive over 55. Maybe we just don't want to see the world keep on changing, but I I would make the point that the Best thinking on this is you need to bake in the guardrails early because the change that's being developed is so um, exponential and so rapid that if you don't if you don't think it through early, you're going to lose track of it. So, good on Ed Husick for getting the issue out there. Let's hope it's not just a discussion paper and it leads to some real reforms. But again, quoting Ed. If we do this well, Australia can be world best practice in the development of these technologies. There there are different ways you can develop complex technologies. You can go down a very laissez-faire, you know, almost um, hyper-capitalist framework that the Americans will embrace. You can go down, although there are some attempts in the in the U.S. Congress at the moment to limit it as well. You can have a state totally controlling it, like in China, or you can bake in some some principles into the, the development of it, for instance, making sure that it complies with discrimination law. And there's an argument that if you create really good quality AI, we could, you know, create great export products the way that the Danes make furniture or the Swiss make watches.
0: Hmm or if i'd uh, thought ahead more i could have got a chat gpt to write my outro but um, set, but i
1: reckon set. there is a th- there is a thread here though so the <laughs> the automation um particularly around the way that the media systems operate using this technology which is becoming more and more predictive the algorithms serving us up more and more content actually does go back to the way the public debates are being carried out through the voice but my final thing for your listeners this week, it's a fantastic book that's just hitting the stores called Traffic by Ben Smith, who was the um, editor of BuzzFeed before it went belly up. And the, the book sort of charts the whole way that news changed into a commodity that was about maximising engagement and how the sort of conversations that we're having at the moment, be it around the voice or around interest rates or around anything to do with our life, are polarised by design and maybe we should have had that as the last question on the AI. Do we like the way that our world is being curated by these so-called intelligent automation engines? There you go. I tried to wrap it up.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, decoding how we're being pushed to <laughs> polls of uh, various issues of voice or, or AI. It's been good chewing it over with you. Thanks very much, Peter. Absolute pleasure, Paul. This episode was produced by Mel Chun and Alison Chan. Our executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening. We'll have another episode of Australian Politics on Saturday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?